Let me let me jump in because I actually love how that that kind of tees up um, a little bit what I want to talk about. Because it's Mother's Day, I just want to start off by telling you my favorite story about my mom. Is that okay? Um, and it's really embarrassing about me, but it's my favorite story about my mom. Uh, so I told the, some of the staff this like three weeks ago. Um, when I was in sixth grade, um, six, sixth grade, so. In sixth grade, I was playing minor league, like, uh, not minor league baseball. I wasn't a professional baseball <laughs> Working my way to the league. I was right on the, th the threshold of the league, sixth grade. Um, I was playing middle school baseball. And w if you've ever played baseball, softball, there's, there's other comparative experiences in other sports. But um, when you're on deck, when you're in the on-deck circle, and, and you're up next, but the person right before you is currently batting, and you're like trying to stretch out, trying to warm up, trying to like get the timing down. You're trying to get ready. 90% of the time, you feel like you have to pee. Um, but you know, you learn over time, it's not real. You don't actually have to. As soon as you get up into the game, it's fine. It goes away. Um, so I'm on deck, and it's sixth grade. I actually have to pee. And I'm like, I'm, but it's fine. It's no problem. And then I get up to bat, and it doesn't go away <laughs> like usual. Um, so I'm up to bat. And I'm like, I have to go so bad, I'm like dancing in the batter's box, like waiting, like new batting stance, like we're doing some of this stuff. And the, the guy throws a pitch, and it's not even close to a strike. It's like way over here. But I had to pee so bad, I just had to keep moving. So I just decided to swing at it, because I'm just trying not to pee my pants. So, I'm, so it's like way over there, and I'm just kinda, I just kind of swing, because I'm just trying to keep moving. And as soon as I open up my hips, I just start peeing myself. And we're at like a tournament, so there's like all this huge crowd, and all this, all my friends are on the on the on the bleachers or whatever. And I don't know what to do. I just I just I just swing the bat, and I just start peeing my pants, and then I just I just freeze. I don't know what to do, and I just drop onto the ground into like a um, fetal position. And I'm literally just sitting there thinking, nobody knows yet, nobody knows yet. And I'm just trying to think, what do I do? What do I do? And I, I didn't know what else to do. I just said, I just, I just said, Mom! <laughs> I just started yelling, Mom! Mommy! <laughs> I had no, I did not know what to do. I was like completely in, I was out, sky is falling, there's no way out of this. Mom! 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 My mom happens to be a, um, a nurse at like a family practice locally. Everybody knows her or whatever. She comes running out onto the field. And she gets down next to me and she says, what's going on? And I said, I'm being my pants. <laughs> she, says, she says, don't worry about it, just follow my lead. She turns to my coach and she said, coach, it's a groin. It's a groin. <laughs> Pop that groin. It's bad. And she comes down and she says, just follow my lead. It's okay. It's all right. And I said, I said she said, I'm going to help you up and you just need to limp a little bit. And I'm like, okay, okay. And she turns to the coach. She said, coach, it's bad. It's, it's bad, coach. We're going to have to just take him straight to the car. We're going to just try to get this figured out. And so she, she, she kind of picks me up off the ground. She turns me into her. She puts, puts my arm over her lap. And then, she, and then she's like, you've got to do your best limp. Like, do a real good limp. So I'm like struggling. <laughs> struggling. We're like struggling to the car. She's like, we're good, we're good. Nobody knows. We're struggling to the car. The whole audience stands up and starts clapping. <laughs> brave. Very brave. Very brave. Very brave. 
Nobody ever knew. We got to the car, went home, nobody ever knew. I don't think my friends still know to this day. Maybe it's like a safe time now. I could tell them about that. It's a safe time. I was in a, I was in a terrible situation. Unwinnable situation. Decaying by the second situation. I was done for. I had no way out. I had no strategy. I could not help myself. But I knew who could help me. And I called the right name. I knew who could help. I was connected deeply to that person. And I called the right name. This isn't going to sell you any books. It's not going to sell me any books. But mission and leadership, just keep this off the grid. It's just between you, you and me. Mission and leadership is far less about what you do and far more about who you know. The key to spiritual renewal or revival is not our strategies. It's God's presence. It's, it's God's presence in us, in us in him, and us calling God's presence into every relationship we have, into every space that we have. It's God's presence. You see, in verse 1, Paul arrives in Ephesus, and by the end of it, in verse 20, he's got this kind of, Luke has this summary statement of the whole episode. He says this in verse 20, he says, In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Spread widely and grew in power. I would say this is actually a really good description of revival. It's a really good description of what we hope for. For the knowledge of God to spread rapidly, but not as an idea, not as an option, not as information, but to spread rapidly with power and authority. So that pe people are actually receiving the good news of Jesus in a way that they surrender to, submit to, because it has power and authority. It has the right to govern who I am, what I do, uh, 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 how I operate, the relationships I have. And in this way, in this way, revival happened. A whole city shifted in some way. Transformation came to a region. Are you curious about that? Do you want that? I want that. I'm curious about that. And so I wanted to, 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 to glean on this. I, I think, just to tell you on the front end, I, uh, uh, it is my strong belief uh, um, from years of study that revival, the way that we would understand revival, revival emerges at the intersection of God's divine grace and steady human effort. So my, my, if you just study revivals through history, uh, um, every time a revival happens, whether it's a localized revival, a regional revival, a national revival, a worldwide revival, any time a revival happens, the reason that revival happened is not because the people did this, 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 and this. Study it, make it a formula, and now for every time to come, we just have to do this, 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 and this. Very simple. The reason revival happens is because God. Because in his sovereignty and power and grace and love, God did that. But at the same time, you'll never see a revival happen where the people of God are just sitting around doing nothing. So the people of God have a role to play. A measure of rhythmic faithfulness to some practices. And we desperately hope for God to baptize those rhythms of revival with his grace, with his favor, with his mercy for a time and for a people. Are you with me? 
So that would be like a, 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 my theological bias toward revival. So I think we should carefully reflect on a study of a revival, a localized revival. And to try to glean from it what we can as missionaries, as microchurch leaders, as people who hunger and thirst for revival, renewal all around us. In this way, revival came. But in, in what way? What are we talking about? I actually think in this way, the word of the Lord spread with authority and power does not refer to exactly what happened before it. It refers to the whole passage. It's a summary statement. Paul showed up in Ephesus. All this stuff happened in this way. The word of the Lord spread. Rapidly and with authority and power. I think re revival in Ephesus came through ritual to a degree. In baptism and in regular gathering, like we mentioned. Uh, um, I, I think rituals like baptism or the Lord's Supper, are, are we could see them as like dead old traditions. They're not relevant anymore. We can move on from them. We can create our own, that kind of thing. But I actually think rituals are not meant to be dead old tradition. Rituals actually function to wake us up right now, every single day, to the reality of our union with God. That's the, the highest, that's the gift of ritual. The gift of the Lord's Supper, the gift of baptism, the gift uh, um, of other rituals and traditions through history. They rewire us, continue to rewire us to understanding the reality and proclaiming to the watching world the reality uh, of the kingdom. But it's not just through ritual. Revival came through teaching. Three months of preaching in a synagogue, two years of daily teaching in a lecture hall. Working with people who weren't believers in, in, in an evangelistic space and also doing uh, character and integrity kind of discipleship teaching, I'd assume, in a, in a, in a post-conversion space in that lecture hall with those 12 disciples. Deep, relational, and consistent spiritual formation. Teaching. Teaching. But revival didn't just come through ritual and just through teaching. It also came through supernatural ministry. And primarily in, in this text through healing and de deliverance. So much healing that even a handkerchief and an apron joined the party. So much power, so much healing coming out. So much healing that led to even, even led to massive amounts of repudiation and repentance in people. I would actually say that at the end of the text when you see what, it, what repentance cost people. Sometimes when repentance costs this much, you have to have supernatural ministry. People aren't going to like agree to this amount of divestment and repudiation just because you have a good idea. They have to, they have to see a reality, know a reality, be con completely convinced of a reality, which makes all of this stuff that has made up their life completely irrelevant and, and doesn't actually mean anything. For them to burn $50,000, and each one of those things is an average day's wage, 50,000 days wages worth of those scrolls. In our time, average, uh, average day's wage of an American worker, $181, that's over $9 million worth of like the stuff of life that is meaningless, being burned corporately. It came through teaching, it came through supernatural ministry. It came through ritual, and it came through a radical kingdom ethic. This is the burning of those scrolls. In other places, it's the way in which, it, the, way in which the church cared for the poor, the way in which the church was hospitable, the way in which the church reconciled all kinds of people into the same family. These are like radical ethics of the kingdom, which by themselves, they're, they're not necessarily trying to be evangelistic. They're not trying to start a renewal. They're just trying to be the people of God among one another with the ethics of the kingdom. And those ethics would actually spark renewal and revival in the watching world. 
just so different, so would cause so many questions, would speak to the reality of Jesus just in who they are, what the de- decisions they're making. The burning of those scrolls, the public confession, pu- mass public confession, and the burning of those scrolls is a modeling of kingdom ethics. All these things. The word of the Lord spread widely and in power in this way. In what way? All this. All this. In that, that way. At that time. In that city. Revival came through a small community committed to ritual, teaching, supernatural ministry, and radical kingdom ethics. And the word of the Lord spread quickly and with power and authority. But here's the point of, of uh, I would say, of the whole morning. And I think it's the core point of this text. If you don't remember anything, if you, if you forget everything I've said so far, it's totally fine. Just listen. All of these rhythms of revival that I would call them in this text, it's not exclusively these, but in this story that we see, all of these rhythms of revival are really just a matter of presence and intimacy with God. They are a matter of of being in unity and union with the triune God. You see, Luke makes clear in the ritual of baptism in that first story, he makes clear that it's not enough to know the idea of God. It's not enough to even repent of the ways of the old world and wait for the way of the kingdom. It's not enough to to have true ideas about God. You have to actually be in union, oneness, commune with God. And that's this, this contrast that's being set up in the front end. You, God, Paul actually has the goods of presence for people who do not know presence. And that, that, the, the entering into that presence has to be ritualized. We have to see it. We have to know it. You do, and all of us, in the, in the act of baptism. It's not just ritual baptism. Teaching, I would say, is about, actually about presence. Teaching isn't just about like mental formation and, 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 and theological frameworks and developing mental ideas. I actually think teaching is about growing in your understanding of God, growing in your understanding of God, in, of yourself, so that you can grow in the fullness of your union with God, that there would be no barriers between you and he. I think the moment that you say yes to Jesus, be my savior, be my master, be my Lord, you're actually immediately in full communion with the Trinity. But, you're, but, but the, the rest of your life is actually working that out by trying to understand yourself, understand God, understand his heart, understand his mind, understand his way, understand his character. And then to see the ways in which you're not like that and to actually start to unearth and remove those barriers by the power of the Holy Spirit to be in full union with Christ Jesus. This is the highest goal of teaching. Not that you would memorize everything in the world or be able to win arguments. But teaching is actually for the sake of our union, for the sake of God's presence. Supernatural ministry, I think clearly from this text, is about union. Supernatural ministry only happens from union and for the sake of more union. More union in me, more union in them, more union in us, more union in the city. And Luke makes really clear by another contrast, a second contrast in the story, by contrasting it with an attempt at supernatural ministry without union. 
And you know what happens to the, to the people who try to do supernatural ministry without union? They end up needing the, the help of, of a handkerchief and an apron that are in union with God. To wipe down and cover up. It's a, it's, it, it is a, a baseless pursuit. And, and supernatural ministry comes from union. It's, it's, it, it, it comes from the heart of God, from being in the presence of God, from hearing from God, from calling the presence of God into your life and in the spaces around you. And it is for the sake of more union. More. It's not just, it's not just supernatural ministry or teaching or, or rituals. It's even the, the radical kingdom ethics that result from this. Those radical kingdom ethics of burning a bunch of scrolls and doing public confession, that only happens from people who are in union. And they, and they realize none of this matters. Burn it all. It doesn't matter at all. And you know what it does when they burn it all? It gives more union. We don't have it anymore. More union. More presence with God. The key to spiritual renewal is not strategy. Strategy's good. Strategy's fine. You should have a strategy. If you don't, you're going to be in trouble. But don't close your fist around that strategy. Close your fist around God's presence. And if your strategies are effective without God's presence, burn them. The key to spiritual renewal is not strategy. It's presence. It's God's presence. And as church leaders, who you are, many of you, as missionaries, who you are, many of you, I just am provoked by the passage. Are we leading people through these rhythms of revival deeper into God's presence? Because if you aren't leading them that way, if I'm not leading my people that way, who is? Who will? Lead them through these rhythms deeper and deeper into God's presence. I was thinking this week about how we tend sometimes to drill down into receiving and delivering the knowledge of God just in one or two ways. Sometimes it's the way that was most powerful for us in our history and our story. And then we can become locked around per pursuing renewal and revival in the, in the people around us, the spaces around us, even ourselves, just in one or two ways. And it's, it's, it's normal to, to it's, and, and rarely to do all, many of them, all of them, and to hold them all in concert and harmony. It's normal to hear about initiatives that hope to see revival through blank. Isn't it? We want to pursue revival through blank. This thing. We're trying to chase revival through relational evangelism. We want to see revival happen through contact evangelism. We, we're going to see a, a revival in this city through 24-hour prayer meetings everywhere all over the city. We're going to see revival through liturgical unity. We're going to see revival through power evangelism. We're going to see uh, revival in the city through theological teaching around this issue or that, that issue. We're going to see revival happen in the city through a series of tent meetings and a series of worship gatherings or conferences. Uh, I, even, I even found a website this morning that said that they want to pursue revival through pet inclusivity. Joe, you want me to say that again? Through pet inclusivity. That the way that people have become so concerned with their pets, like so intimately bonded with their pets, that the way in which to pursue revival in our time is to actually make church relevant for people and their pets. I am not kidding. This is just, this is just a paragraph. We want a church where people understand our close emotional bond with our pets. And I love pets. Don't, don't bring that hate rate on me. I love dogs. I love, 
I'm okay with cats. I have an okay, like, like mutual understanding relationship with cats. We want a church where people understand our close emotional bond with our pets. A church where all God's creatures would be included in the gospel message. A church where pet lovers could find the kind of pastoral care and community that would support them through the ups and downs of caring for animals. Do you? you the, I know it's crazy. You have to. Again, it's like we want to see revival. Through, we're cultural analysis. How are people? Where are people at right now? A lot of people are in this kind of space. Let's let's. Well, the church is ineffective. These kind of people. We think the way in which to make the church effective and spark revival is to actually create a theology of salvation for their pets and a and a communion that is accessible to people and their pets. The the name of the of the organization is Unleashed. <laughs> Yes, 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 it's so good, you got to give him props for that, it's so good, the L was like a, like a leash in cursive, it was so good, so good, <laughs> actually there, there's entire denominations that are built primarily on pursuing the knowledge, pursuing and delivering the knowledge of God in one or two of these ways. Entire streams of Christianity that see spiritual renewal through liturgy and tradition and ritual. Entire streams of Christianity that see spiritual renewal through teaching and theological training. Entire streams of Christianity that see spiritual renewal happening through supernatural ministry. Entire streams of Christianity that see uh, a spiritual renewal through radical kingdom ethics and social conscience. But I think what I see here and what I see consistently elsewhere in the New Testament and what I see in all of church history is a resounding yes to all of it. Yes. Yes. All of it. We need all of it. And not a yes because, yes, you're right, it is strategic. Yes, you're right, this is how revival happens in every space of history. No, it's a yes because all of it is a part of engaging in God's presence. Supernatural ministry, ritual, awakening, everyday rewiring to the realities of God, teaching one another in our, in our communities with, and, and admonishing and encouraging one another. All of, yes, yes. Because all of it is a matter, and it's an essential matter of being in God's presence, being in union with God. All of it. And so I've wondered this week, uh, uh, am I, are we, are you, are you, are we leading our people into God's presence through ritual? Are you in your, in your own community, are, 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 don't just lean on other people to give you ritual. You're an expression of the church. You, you actually need to lead your people and yourself in, in ritual, meaningful ritual. The Eucharist, the, the body and blood of Jesus, the blessed table fellowship. Uh, 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 and to actually, whether you do like you get some juice or some bread or something like that, or you just have a meal together. And before that meal starts, you just remind. It, it, just, like, it can be so simple. You just remind the whole table. When we do this. When we break bread, there's you know, some quesadillas there, there's some chips over there, some rice and beans. Listen, when we break bread, we actually pro we remember why a community like this is even possible in the first place. And we proclaim to the watching world the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. Past the rice and beans. You know, they, 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 to, to do some like real, to instill real ritual 
in the communities that you lead and are a part of. I actually love confession and absolution. I think absolution has a bad rap. Sometimes people see absolution as like that guy is, is forgiving someone of their sins uh, um, and he never died on a cross and he doesn't have the right to do that and that's messed up and absolution is bad. That's not a high view of absolution. Absolution is somebody with spiritual leadership and authority sitting across the table from somebody who just offered a confession. And instead of just being like empathetic and like, oh, this, I'm so glad you told me. And can we just like have a little Bible study and agree that that's bad? And so, at some point in that conversation to look them in the eyes and say, God has forgiven you. You are free from that thing. You are totally free. You are washed in the blood. You hold on to that. He's not. Let go of the things he's already let go of. That's absolution. Some of you don't like absolution, but you've been doing absolution for 10 years. That's ritual. That's ritual. That's liturgy. Baptism. I, I, I love it when I hear of microchurches doing baptisms. The first three months I was here, I needed a wheelbarrow one time. I ran over. I called at 4.30. I called the guys at Sly House. I said, do you have a wheelbarrow? I, I went over to Timothy Initiative at Sly House just to grab a wheelbarrow. Nobody was home. I went. They just told me the lock key or how to get back there. I went back to get a wheelbarrow. And Julie Wood is just hanging back there with three or four people. And she's just baptizing people. It's like in the pool in the back of Sly House. It's like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like... What happened here? How is this? And I hadn't really met Julie before. I was like, hey, Julie, how are you? And come to find out that was basically quintessential Julie Wood. Like I was just like in the in – a, I just love gathering people and not letting moments like that pass, not letting like somebody who surrenders their life to Jesus and just say, I'm so glad you did this. This is great. Let's move to the next thing. But gathering the community and saying for them, for them, this is an important moment for them to be, to be uh, uh, obedient to the leadership and life of Jesus who himself got baptized, but also for our community to celebrate with the angels and to let this person go down into the tomb and come up alive in Christ Jesus. Amen. You like who else is going to do that? I'm not going to do that for you. Creed's not going to come to your mic church and do that for you. You like you got to do that. You got to do that. And it's your gift, your privilege, your honor to do that. It's the joy of your community to do that. I love when I see microchurches engage in the liturgical calendar together to do Lent together, to engage in Advent together, to engage in Holy Week together. Are you leading your people in the gift of ritual, not dead tradition, but practice that awakens us to the reality of God? Are you leading your people into presence through teaching, not just through ritual? Are you leading your people into God's presence through teaching? And there's a lot of things to talk about here. There's a whole lot of ways to talk about how you as a leader and, 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 and growing in your own leadership and leading the people around you with your influence can grow in teaching. I just want to talk about, just for a minute, the Bible. Is, is the Bible which is useful for teaching and admonition and rebuke and encouraging and training to righteousness is the Bible core to the formation, the spiritual formation of you and your people in Christ Jesus. And if it's not, I just beg you to reconsider. I beg you. I beg you to reconsider that the scriptures, God has equipped you in the scriptures for all those good, useful things. This is the word of the Lord to use the Bible more frequently.
Like, we're good. We're good. I'm good. We're good. That was... <laughs> Is the Bible core to the reality of your leadership and the nature of the community that you lead and are a part of? And I just want to hit on what Derek was talking about. The weekly Bible study that you have, even if you do have one, whether it's over dinner or you gather with a few people in the lunchroom or you get coffee early morning before work with like a three or four coworkers or neighbors or something like that, that weekly engagement with Scripture should not be the only time you are teaching one another from the Word. But consistently in the New Testament, they have a daily interaction with each other that's always filled with truth. Daily, authentic leadership over lunch, over coffee, over quick texts and late night calls and check-ins and game nights, finding ways to encourage and speak the truth over one another. Shameless plug for the Institute. This is why the Institute exists. To teach and not teach for the sake of fun ideas and mental frameworks and, and mental development. To teach for the sake of of a fuller and truer unity, union with God in you and your leadership and among the people that you lead and serve. A lot of us take like a break from our normal rhythm over the summer. And I just think it's a great opportunity to say, hey, let's just discern together. What's a great, what's, what's something that we can learn together this summer and to engage in together this summer. And there's a whole lot of great options. Bree told you about them. But it's, it's our, we know, we're aware, not every leader, and it's, this is very freeing, not every leader is going to be like a crazy, gifted, professional trainer, teacher. But you do have to consider how to continue to grow in teaching and training your people. So that's why we, that's why we try to put things in place that are like, it's okay, we, we can provide stuff for you. In the same way that not every leader is going to be like off the charts pastoral. It's okay. Continue leading. We're just going to provide spaces for you to actually use for pastoral care. Shameless plug. Are you leading people into God's presence through ritual? Are you leading people into God's presence through teaching? Are you leading God's people into his presence through supernatural ministry? When people are sick, do you, do you pray for them to be healed? Especially people who don't know Jesus. I mean, you're like, that's like, you're right, there we are, here we go. Especially people, do you pray for, when people are wrestling with like anxiety or depression or something like that in your midst, do you pray that, again, God, we, we don't even quite understand some of these like, like mental illness things, but I guess we do understand that maybe this could be spiritual, and if it is, God, would you just get it out of them? In the name of Christ Jesus, you're king of the body, I don't understand that, I didn't get a degree, but you know. And you're actually the only one who needs to know. Would you, would you make this person whole? Right. If somebody, if somebody like one day was to, totally life-giving, totally joyous, totally at peace, and then you see them the next day and they're like raging, are, has it ever occurred to you to pray? Like that, that sometimes anger issues or, or a quickness in temperament might actually be something to pray for. There, that we're actually in a, a spiritual war that we've stepped into. That some, some, we don't even fully understand, understand most of the time. But again, we don't need to. The, we know the one who understands it. 
to engage with evil in a supernatural way. See, supernatural ministry isn't about strategy. It's about intimacy. Teaching isn't about knowing facts. It's about knowing a personal king and being connected to him. Ritual isn't about dead tradition. It's about waking up again and again to the reality of our union with God. The key to supernatural renewal and revival is not strategy. It's presence. It's God being connected to him, knowing him. It's far less about what you do. It's far more about who you know. If the worship team would come up, I just want to end with, I think for me, the most inspiring kind of picture of the week, which is this mound of, of burning scrolls. It's, the, the whole week, I just couldn't get the, the imagery out of my head, what it means for those people, what it meant for the city watching that pile of scrolls burn. I've been inspired all week by that image. And I started wrestling a little bit with, with uh, some of the mounds of scrolls in my life that I've had to burn, and maybe more in the future that I might have to. Six months after I started following Jesus, you know, a lot of you know my story, but a part of my story that it was that I was a ser- the most the thing that I was most addicted to was stealing. Uh, the substances, the alcohol, it was all like not not as difficult, but years into following Jesus, I can I had a constant like a addi- mentally addicted relationship with stealing, the thrill of stealing, the adrenaline of stealing, things that I don't need, things that. I would, I would be mad at myself 30 minutes after I left the store for why did I do that? That was so dumb. And uh, I, I just had this insatiable. And without Jesus, I had amassed a pretty big mound of uh, scrolls of theft. Um, every, every DVD I owned, every CD I owned, every pair of shoes I had, every coat I had, um, I, I just had just about everything I owned was stolen. And I didn't think that was a problem when I surrendered to Jesus. I'm going to stop stealing now, but I can still keep all these things. And it was six months later, we were studying. I was in a college Bible study. We were, I was studying the story of Zacchaeus. You know that story? So, it, you know, the, the rich young ruler happens, and he has this, con- this really hard conversation with the rich young ruler about needing to divest. And then they're like, they're like, oh, my goodness, it's so hard for a rich man to eat into the kingdom of God. It's like impossible. What's going on? Just a chapter later, there's a story of a rich person entering the kingdom of God. It's Zacchaeus who has has gained all of his wealth by defrauding people. He actually was responsible for making a vast majority of the community poor in his occupation. He's got no problem with that. Jesus sees him and says, Zacchaeus, come down. Can I, can I hang out in your house today? Jesus never says, you need to pay back everyone. You need to completely divest from your resources. You need to actually make right what you've done wrong. And on top of making right what you've done wrong, you actually need to be generous on top of that. Jesus never has this conversation with him. Zacchaeus walks in and just actually willfully, just in presence with God, just in relationship with God, willfully decides, it's just driven like, I cannot be, uh, uh, I cannot be in collaboration with this evil in my life. I don't want this anymore. He wasn't even demanded. He just chose. I'm going to pay back everybody that I've defrauded, even more so than what I've defrauded them. And I'm still going to give even more than that, uh, uh, just in generosity the poor, to the poor in the city. That would be called uh, a restitution or, or uh, repudiation. And we're studying that text in this college Bible study. My first time ever like seeing this, this story. And I'm, I'm immediately convicted 
I don't want this shirt on me. I don't these shoes. I stole these shoes. I stole these pants. I what is this watch? What everything. I'm just starting to think of everything in my life. I don't want it. It feels icky. Get it away from me. And I just started going through my life, racking up a mound. And and uh, I had stolen, I, ra- I totaled up. There was this one convenience store, this one grocery store that had a really terrible anti-theft system. And I, I took from that place over the course of four years a little over $2,000 worth of alcohol. And I, I totaled up everything that I'd done over the last four or five years to my recollection. It wasn't perfect, but it was like around two grand. And I decided, I mean, I can't, I can't give all that booze back, but I decided to, again, this is going to sound so juvenile. Just give a little grace with me. The, I, I decided to write a letter to the CEO of that grocery store with, and put in there $2,000 of cash and fold it up. And I wrote this letter of just like my story coming to know Jesus. And now I'm convicted about what I've done to you and maybe even to your workers. And this wasn't right. And so I have to get free of this. I have to get clear of this. Um, and I didn't want to write a check because my name would be on it and I didn't want to go to jail. <laughs> so I had to do cash, right? I had to do cash. <laughs> I had to do cash. But I also knew I'm sending cash to some CEO somewhere that doesn't know me from anybody. And he could just open this thing up and just be like, payday, bonus, you know, what? I'm good, or whatever. So I just wrote at the end of my letter, you'll have to answer to God for what you do with this money. <laughs> I just folded that up and I put it in a, and I mailed it on. The most expensive thing I stole was I was a pole vaulter in high school. I stole a pole from a, like a big, like, probably like a $900 pole vaulting pole. Three in the morning, I like, I like saran wrapped this thing to my car and tried to drive it through the night to where I took it from and put it back. <laughs> put that right back. You know? Just trying to rid myself, rid myself. Eventually in life, it gets harder. I have all these dreams, this way I want to be when I'm 30, this, this, this life I want to live when I'm 35, this way I think I'm striving toward till I'm 40. All of a sudden, I realize none of that is righteous. None of that is of God. None of that is his will for me. And suddenly I have to burn that pile of scrolls. These were my mounds of burning scrolls. And I just started thinking this week, I hunger to see mounds of burning scrolls all over the city. Mounds of burning scrolls that are prophetic testimony to the futility of the way of the world to bring life. Mounds of scrolls burning that attest to the power in the way of Jesus to satisfy, to deliver us from death. I dream of massage parlors that are doubling as brothels that close down because the owners or the man, the landowners or the managers decide that the entire the, the entire enterprise that is providing for their their life is fundamentally evil and they shut it down. I dream of, of, of lingerie shops and massage parlors that completely shut down and are turned into something else because the demand for that kind of industry completely dries up because of a renewal of spiritual sexual ethics in the city. I dream of, uh, uh, of, of um, d- divorce lawyers going completely out of, uh, they got nothing to do anymore. They got to find some other place to work. Because of a complete, total, supernatural, spiritual renewal in the way that people understand covenant with one another.
I, I, I dream of, uh, uh, I, I dream of police officers who, who, who become self-aware of their own racial implicit bias and decide that this thing that exists in me actually disqualifies me from having the right to take life and actually willfully choose publicly to confess that and retire from that service as prophetic witness to the city and supernatural renewal that would come. I dream, I dream of landowners and, 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 and people who own like apartment complexes all over the city who embrace cutting their profits in half because they become convinced that they have to provide affordable housing for people. And actually providing affordable housing to people is going to cost me and that's worth it because who cares because this is right. This is the righteousness of God. This is the ethics of the kingdom. I will sacrifice half my profit in the year because I must provide housing. These are the mounds I want to see burn. Do you want to see them burn? If you want to see these mounds burn, you have to be able to identify your own. You have to know your own. You have to know the areas that you, that when you came to Jesus became completely baseless, pointless to hold on to. The massive amounts of sacrifice that don't even actually feel sacrificial to you. They just felt obvious. Would you set fire to your scrolls today? Would you go deeper in the presence of God today in a way that, that makes meaningless, valueless, anything that is not of Him? So as we come to the table this morning, we remember that we hold our ideas and our strategies loosely with an open hand because the thing that we hunger for, which is renewal and revival for the kingdom of God to spread all over the city in authority and power, that, that the key to seeing that thing happen is simply presence with the God who has purchased you from death. For you to be deeply entangled in his presence and to call his presence into every relationship and space you go to. I say, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. And when you eat it, you remember him. And in the same way, he took the cup, poured it out, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's the new order. It's the new way. It's shed for the forgiveness of sins. When you drink it, you drink it in memory of me. And so this morning, underground, as a family, come into this ritual. Come into this realization. Come into this memory. Come and be rewired by this reality. Wake up to it this morning. That God wants to be present with you in the fullness of who you are. God wants you to commune with him in the fullness of who he is. And he also wants to come through you to bring his presence to those who he sent you to. This morning, the body and blood of Jesus given for you.